0: There's a great and puzzling question for most people who begin the practice and study of Buddha Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha. And that question is if there's no self, who is it that's reborn? Who is it that's making effort If there's no self, who experiences karmic results? Who falls in love? Who gets angry? Who becomes concentrated? If there's no self, who is this who? That's the question. What does it mean to say that there is no self? think sometimes people may imagine some vanishing in a cosmic flash of enlightenment all of a sudden poof and nothing is left or maybe people have the idea that no self means some kind of merging with a great divine being The understanding of selflessness is the deepest and most precious jewel of the Buddhist teaching. And in these months of practice, there's the possibility of beginning to open up to some real sense, some real understanding of this radically transformative insight as we understand in a deeper way what selflessness means it completely changes our perspective of who we think we are and how the world is working what we find is that we are not who we think we are We're not who we imagine ourselves to be. And when we find this out, it's both a big surprise and also a great relief. Just imagine realizing you're not who you think you are. (laughs) That's good news. (laughs) What I would like to do tonight is to go on a little journey in the mind, It's a journey of understanding of just how this notion of self, this idea of self is created, how it is that it's become so strong in our conditioning, that our whole lives revolve about it. And through seeing how it's created, how it's constructed in the mind, there's then the possibility of seeing how to free ourselves from attachment to that construction. What keeps us so strongly conditioned to the habit of self the sense of self, of I, is one factor in the mind, or one quality of the mind, which in Pali is called ditti. Ditti means wrong view or incorrect seeing. When ditti is operating in the mind, it has this amazing power to make us see things exactly opposite to what is really true. It's a very powerful force. It's expressed in a poetic way very beautifully by the poet Rumi. I'll just read a little excerpt from this poem it really exemplifies how wrong view works the presence of truth is there in front of me a fire on the left and a lovely stream on the right one group walks toward the fire into the fire and another group toward the sweet flowing water No one knows which group is blessed and which is not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. The head goes under on the water surface. That head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire, I am Fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. When wrong view is operating, we all are going, following into that sweet flowing water of worldly understanding and so end up in the real fire. As we practice the dhamma, as we are practicing this mindfulness, it's really like going into the fire of what's happening. And by going into the fire, we end up in the coolness of the water. Wrong view in the mind keeps us living in a world of appearances. Keeps us imprisoned in a world of appearances. few examples of how it works. Because of ditti, or wrong view in the mind, what we do is we take what is changing and impermanent to be unchanging, to be permanent. Probably you hear that and you think, well, I don't do that. You know, it's obvious that things are impermanent, things are changing. (coughs) I'd like to read to you a quote from one of the scientists working on the project that sent the Voyager space satellite ship going past all the planets This is is a report from one of the scientists. Everything we have seen indicates that the solar system is far more dynamic than we originally anticipated, said assistant project scientist Ellis Minor. Before, astronomers conceded that the outer planets might have been active in their first billion years of existence, but figured the last three billion were basically a holding pattern But now we suspect that very few things are unchanged over three billion years. (laughs) It's a beginning. (laughs) Well, we may really have understood that things do change over three billion years. But do we know it deeply in our own lives? What's important here is to distinguish what we know intellectually from the truth that we're actually living. Because we can know things intellectually, but not have integrated it in our understanding. And we can see the force of ditti or wrong view taking what is impermanent to be permanent every time we become attached to something. We become attached to people. We become attached to possessions. We become attached to our bodies. Where is that attachment coming from? It's coming from a certain delusion in the mind, a certain ignorance in the mind. That somehow that person, or that thing, or that situation is going to last. We have forgotten deeply that everything is changing, that that is the nature of things. And that happens every time there's attachment in the mind. The force of ditti is working. We get attached to life itself. Forgetting that it is a changing process. And this attachment is very different than the feeling and spirit of love. Because we can have love for people and love for situations and love for life without any attachment, without any clinging, without any grasping at all. The grasping is a function of wrong view, that our minds have suddenly reversed how things really are. Ditti works in another way. It takes what is basically unsatisfying to be satisfying. And again, we we can take a look, how are we doing this ourselves? in our own lives, not, not just as a theory. We can see it in different ways. We can see it when we opt for something that gives immediate gratification and yet we know brings long-term difficulties. And we do it in small ways, we do it in big ways, We take what is basically unsatisfactory, but in our minds, we somehow turn it around and make it satisfying for that moment, until later on we're again reminded. We do it in a broader scope when we take a look at what we want out of life, what our aim is, what our purpose is. One of the things that motivated the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, before he became Buddha to seek enlightenment, to seek awakening, he reflected on life, on experience, on his pursuits, and he said to himself, why should I, who am impermanent, subject to change, also seek that which is impermanent? seek that which is changing? There's something very profound in that and very relevant to our own lives. Are we seeking in our lives something else which is transitory, something else which, in its nature, cannot be finally satisfying? And if so, then it becomes again the working of wrong view. We're taking what is unsatisfying, finally, in a, in a complete way, and we're taking it to be satisfactory. And then we build our lives on that misunderstanding. The third manifestation of ditti or wrong view, is that we take what is not self to be self. We become identified with the body. This is who I am. And that identification is strong. You know, whenever we refer to ourselves, the first thing we point to is this me, as if this body is who I am. Or we take different thoughts or different emotions to be who I am. Quite a few years ago, there was a woman on staff the center. who was working in the kitchen as a cook. And for some reason, in kind of the staff community life, people were just relating to her all the time as being the kitchen. Being responsible for the kitchen. And that's, that's who, she, who she became. And finally, in this great moment of frustration... She was from Georgia, and she kind of said this in this wonderful southern accent, which I can't reproduce. I am not the kitchen. (laughs) I am not the kitchen. That was like a big opening. (laughs) Because we get identified, we take... Whether it's the kitchen, or the body, or the particular pattern of thoughts, or personality, or emotions. We take all these things to be who we are. And that is the working of ditti, of wrong view. We are taking what is not self to be self. So the question then, in this journey of trying to understand this, what keeps this force of wrong view, what keeps this force of ditti so strong in the mind? What keeps fueling it? Why don't we see things in a more clear and accurate way? What keeps wrong view strong in the mind? Why we keep seeing things opposite to their true nature? is because of two particular kinds of perceptions. One is called the perception of continuity and the other is called the perception of solidity. When we perceive things to be continuous, then we are not understanding, we are not seeing the momentary impermanent nature of phenomena. And when we don't see the momentariness of phenomena, it leads us into the wrong view of seeing things as being ultimately satisfying. Because we're not seeing that they're momentarily disappearing, that they're incapable of giving a real lasting satisfaction. So, when we perceive continuity, we don't see impermanence. We don't see unsatisfactoriness. When we perceive solidity, that prevents us from understanding selflessness. So, how do things appear continuous? Sometimes, we're deceived into seeing the continuity of things because of the rapidity of change. We go to the movies, get completely involved in the story, get caught up in the story. You know, we feel happy or sad or excited or afraid, whatever. Because we're seeing it as some continuous flow of events. Really what's happening in the movies, it's a series of separate frames changing very, very rapidly. So rapidly that we don't see it as separate frames. And so we get caught in the story of it. We're not seeing the momentariness of what's actually there. You know, you twirl a a torch of fire. You twirl it very quickly. What appears is a circle of fire. And it seems as if there's really something there, some circle which is there, rather than seeing that it's, it's just a torch moving very quickly. You hear the bell. Of course, by now, I'm sure you can hear that the sound of the bell is not one sound. It's not one thing. It's not something continuous. It's many, 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 many arisings and passings within the interval of one sound. So, the rapidity of change deceives us into thinking things are continuous. We also see continuity or perceive continuity when we're observing something from a distance. So, from a distance, we look out and we may see a rope on the ground, or a stick on the ground. It appears like an unbroken thing. We look a little closer, we come a little closer, and the stick or rope begins to move. We come even closer and we see that it's a line of ants. Each one discrete. We see that when our observation is very close. This is precisely what we're doing in the practice. To break through the illusion of continuity, we start noting and noticing more and more quickly. Some years ago, a group of psychologists came to the Center for a three-month course. Um, A group from Harvard to do a study on rates of perception. And the commonly held belief, as I understand it, in psychological circles was that different people had, have different rates of perception, but that each person's rate is more or less fixed. Well, I tested people before the beginning and the end of the three month course. This machine called a fascistoscope. What it does, it flashes, it flashes lights at closer and closer intervals. And it's testing how close they can come together and still be perceived as separate lights. What they found, which was no surprise to people who had done any practice, was that there was this huge increase in the rate of perception from the beginning of the retreat to the end. But actually what we're doing is refining our perception to see things more and more quickly. It's this power which breaks the illusion. It breaks through this perception of continuity of things. Begin to see the discreteness of phenomena. That things are arising and passing. You know, you've already begun to get a taste of that just in the very simple exercise of observing the breath. At first, we really see it as one event, a rising or an in-breath. You look more and more carefully, hour after hour after hour, and you see that that one in-breath the one rising movement is made up of many different kinds of sensations and movements and differences. We're seeing that because the power of the mind is getting sharper, is getting closer. It's getting quicker, and it's coming very close to it. And so we're seeing the momentariness of phenomena. This may not seem very exciting to you. But in fact, it's tremendously significant because it's the means for overturning The power of ditti in the mind. Because we're seeing in ourselves, in our experience, not as some theory. We're actually experiencing that things are not continuous. Wherever we look, whether it's the breath or sensations in the body or thoughts or sounds or images, we are actually seeing for ourselves the arising and passing moment after moment. This has a tremendous effect on our understanding. The degree of discreteness that we can come to was expressed in a beautiful image by the poet Kabir. He said, listen... to the sound of the anklets on the feet of the ant as it walks by and i just just the sense of getting so quiet you can hear the sound of the anklets on the feet of an ant as practice continues the NPMs go up. NPMs are notings per minute. In the beginning, maybe you have 10 NPMs. And then 15, then 20, then 60. Until the notings per minute gets so high that we're actually seeing the momentary arising and vanishing of phenomena. At that point, there is no doubt at all about the impermanence of things. You spend a few months here, you save yourself three billion years. (laughs) (laughs) They suspect that things change. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's how we break through this perception of continuity, by seeing the rapidity, by becoming very close. How do we break through the perception of solidity? Because this is what's necessary in order to understand selflessness. We take things to be solid when we don't see the composite nature of phenomena. And there's one very classic example. It's from a book called The Melinda Panna*, So the questions of King Melinda. This was a Greek king in one of the Asian provinces of Alexander the Great. It might have been what's close to what's now Afghanistan or someplace in that area. And this king was having a dialogue with this famous Arhant monk, Nagasena. And the king was questioning many of the same questions that we have. And it's an interesting book to read because he's really questioning uh, in this very Western way. And so a lot of the things that we also feel are important He was questioning Nagasena about this idea of self. Nagasena gave this example. Remember, it's in the context of those times. Nagasena asked the king to tell him what a chariot was. It was a chariot, the wheel. No. Oh, Bhante. Bhante's is a of respect for monks. Is the chariot the axle? No, Bante. Is the, tari- is the chariot the chassis? No, Bante. He we went through this whole list of the composite parts. Is the chariot this? Is the chariot that? No, Bante. Nagasena asked Melinda the king. Then what can be called the chariot? Does the chariot actually exist as something? Independent of the collection or relationship of parts. No, Obante. You know, we can see that in examples from our own experience. You can update it to your Toyota. You know, what is the Toyota? What is a car? Is it the wheel? Is it the body? Is it this? Is it that? No. What about the body? What is the body? You know, is it the bones? Is it the blood? Is it... No. We create a certain idea. We create a certain abstraction from seeing things, elements in a relationship to one another. We create this abstraction, we create this concept, and then forget that it is a concept. And we take it to be real in itself. To have substance in itself. like to do another little hands-on experiment. Get your finger ready. Okay. And first just kind of close your eyes and move your finger quickly. You know, just a quick movement up and down. And you move it quickly, can you see the momentariness of the change? It's difficult. We sort of perceive one movement, you know, up or down. Okay, now move it very, very slowly. I hope everybody is doing this. Just very slowly. Close your eyes. What is it that you feel? Now, moment after moment. It's just changing sensations, changing elements. Maybe there's a pulling or a tingling or a warmth or a stretching. Just move it very slowly, concentrating. As you do that, where is the finger? What happens to finger? The concept of finger disappears because that is only an abstraction. The actual experience is of changing sensations. Well, if you get good at making the finger disappear, you can move on to the hand, to the arm, to the legs, to the body, to the mind, to the self. Because they are all equally a concept, an abstraction. When we see the composite nature of what it is that we call finger, what we call body, what we call mind, what we call self, we see that it's just the relationship of different changing elements. There's nothing substantial in and of itself that is real. So what happens in our minds is that we create concepts for things that are not really there. And sometimes they're useful concepts. But we create these concepts for things that are not true, that are not truly there, and then we become attached to them. We become identified with them. And this is the process through which we have created so deeply and so strongly, this sense of I. diti is working as long as we're not seeing the discontinuity of experience and as long as we're not seeing the composite nature of experience. This is a few examples of the kinds of concepts we've created. And I think, I hope that you've got a sense of, just from this little exercise, how when you're just with the moment of experience, there is no finger. Can you do that when there is a pain in the back? The concept, the abstraction is there's a back, it's my back, and it hurts. And so we end up with, my back hurts. My is a concept, back is a concept. Hurts may be real. <laughs> <laughs> but what's quite interesting is that hurts hurts a lot less when we don't add to it the concept of my back. Then we are just with the actual sensation, burning, pressure, tightness, whatever it is, that's okay. That's bearable. But when we build the superstructure of my back on top of the sensation, then we get very contracted or fearful or whatever. And so we add all of that to the basic unpleasantness of it. Another concept which is very strongly conditioned in our lives and comes up a lot on retreat is the concept of time, of past and future. How much of the day is spent in thoughts of the past and thoughts of the future? Probably a lot. The mind has this tendency to get lost, to dwell in these thoughts. Because we invest in that concept of past and future, some reality. As if it's something real and important and substantial. What is it? What is the past? It's simply a thought happening right now in the present moment. It's just a thought arising. It's a thought of a memory, a recollection. But that thought, when we're not aware of it for what it is, when we don't see it for what it is, and we create the concept of past, it draws us right into that whole world. And the same thing with the future. I are certain thoughts of planning or imagining. And if we don't see it simply as being a thought, We're sucked into that world. The Buddha called these concepts of past and future two of the dangers for concentration. He listed listed several different kinds of dangers. These are two of the big ones. Because of our tendency of the mind to dwell in past, dwell in future, and so we stay unconcentrated. We're living in a concept. We're living in an abstraction. We create the concept of body. We create the concept of time. We create the concept of roles and self images. Last, I think it was last summer or two summers ago, I was teaching in Switzerland with Michelle and one of the other teachers, Fred, uh, was giving a talk talking about self-images. And he took out this magazine, which was a Swiss magazine, and there was a six-page advertisement for men's clothes. And the person in, on each of the pages Called Harry Kay. And on the first page, Harry Kay is dressed up in a business suit, in a suit and tie, Harry Kay the businessman. On the next page, Harry Kay was, you know, a candlelight dinner with someone in evening clothes, Harry Kay the romantic. And there was Harry Kay dressed in sports clothes, you know, playing tennis. Harry Kay the sportsman. Harry Kay the lover. Harry Kay the family man. In each place he had his new little outfit on. (laughs) It's really instructive. I mean, we may not have quite as many little outfits, (laughs) but we certainly have as many little images. You know, just self images of who we think we are, of the different roles we're playing, of who other people are. It comes up a lot in terms of images of ourselves as yogis. Sometimes I noticed in myself, especially I really reflected back a lot of these a lot of these images that I didn't even know were there. One side of it was, you know, the good yogi image. I'm a good yogi. And it took me a couple of months to in, in reporting to realize that I never mentioned any thoughts. never mentioned that I was thinking. <laughs> you know, I was just, I would go through my report and, you know, sensations and this and that. I was just had some idea in my mind. Well, that's not important. And really, good yogis don't have a lot of thoughts. And, and I realized how hard it was to just be absolutely simple and direct and straightforward. This is what's happening. You know, without the investment of any image at all. This is the experience. This is what it's like. On the other side, there's often a bad yogi image. I'm the worst yogi here. Right? And I can't do anything right. And I'm not good enough. For me, it got in. at This was at one point in my practice. Somehow, I created this concept or image in my mind. It's like me and everybody else. It was like a race to Nibbana. <laughs> uh, and in my mind... Everybody was at the finish line waiting for me to arrive. (laughs) And so it just totally fed this comparing mind, you know, and every time I saw everybody else take a mindful step and feel that I wasn't so mindful, oh, they're at the finish line. What helped me a lot in that is that it was springtime here. And I was just, uh, I was outside walking and I saw the flowers beginning to come up. And I saw that different of the flowers, some had really come up and bloomed, some were part way up but still closed, some were just peeping out of the ground. And it was such a nice image from it and it helped me relax a lot to realize that each of those flowers is going to grow and to bloom in its own time, you know? and that they weren't racing one another. <laughs> And it just really helped me to settle back and just do the practice, to let the practice bloom. You know. So we have to be watchful of the kind of self-images we create, you know, of the good yogi, of the bad yogi, of comparing mind, of Harry Kay. This concept of the body, concept of time, concepts of roles and self-images, the concept which is most deeply conditioned is the concept of self. As long as we don't see through the illusion of continuity and see through the illusion of the solidity of things, as long as wrong view is present, so we take this composite This mind body composite to be who we are. We take it to be self. We create an idea of I and become attached to that idea. And we do it in very specific ways. We become identified with the body. This is who I am. We become identified with our thoughts. Understanding the thought process is one of the most interesting aspects of this whole process of understanding. And I'm sure you've had a taste of this already. When we are mindful of a thought, and seeing it come and go, it becomes so clear that it is empty phenomena. It has no weight at all. The content of the thought is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter because it's just this little bubble that arises and passes. It has no impact whatsoever if we are simply watching the thought arise and pass away. Contrast that with when we're not mindful of the thought, we're identified with it, we're lost in it, we're involved in it. Think of the weight and the power and the heaviness that that thought assumes. Basically, thoughts rule our lives. Everything we do is because of what we think. And yet when we see them for what they are, they're nothing. They're so ephemeral. Watch very carefully how the sense of self is created in the moment of identification with a thought. There's a little technique, which I think I've mentioned in past years, to help disidentify from the thinking process, which is tremendously freeing. Just imagine all the thoughts coming from the person behind you. They're not yours. They belong to the person sitting behind you. It makes it a lot easier. Let them be responsible. (laughs) then it's easier just to let the thought come and let it go through. It's no problem. But it takes a lot of vigilance because we are in the habit of just latching on over and over again. I'm thinking, this is who I am. So we create the sense of self right there. We do it with emotions. We identify with various emotions. We're happy, we're sad, we're worried, we're depressed, we're angry, we're fearful, we're loving. This is who I am, I'm a loving person, I'm an angry person. That I is extra. The emotion is a mind state, a feeling which arises because of conditions and passes away. Can we allow our mind to be like the sky and the emotions like the clouds passing through? There's so much spaciousness, so much freedom in the non-identification. to stop building the superstructure of self, the superstructure of that concept on top of each moment's experience. The moment is so delicate and so beautiful and is just what it is. The a sight or a sound or a sensation or a thought or an emotion. Why ruin it? Just let it be as it is. We do this through the power of bare attention, through the power of mindfulness. In the scene, just the scene. In the heard, just the heard. In the sense, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. There is just what there is in each moment. If we can do that, we have really overturned the power of wrong view of dittī. We are seeing the impermanence. We are seeing the composite interrelationship of things. We're no longer creating this superstructure of self. That's the place of freedom for us. I'd like to close with a quotation many of you are familiar with. But it really sums all of this up. It's from Kalu Rinpoche, who was a wonderful old Tibetan meditation master who recently died, just this last winter. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. And we are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in this world of ditti, of wrong view. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing, not identifying with any part of experience. Being nothing, we are everything, that is all. Let's sit for a few minutes.